If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Well, Jerry, thank you very much for talking to me today. I thought we'd start by talking about the tragic situation in Israel. I don't know very much about it, but I have been trying to follow the news. I have the impression that the motivation for the Palestinians is possibly not entirely about worrying about loss of land, but also frank, old-fashioned anti-Semitism, rather like the Nazis. Some of their propaganda is more or less exactly the same as Nazi propaganda. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is based on religion. I mean, if we didn't have religion, we wouldn't have this conflict. But the Palestinian attacks are based on anti-Zionism. Their explicit motivation, which is laid out in Hamas's charter, as you know, is to get rid of Israel. <laughs> and what better way to get rid of Yeah, Yeah. I actually, I can read a bit from the, from the charter here restitution of the Muslim state in every inch of Palestine, the raising of the banner of Allah over all of Palestine, which it describes as an Islamic waqf, proclaims that any compromise, even if every Arab and Palestinian leader were to accept it, would be a violation of Islamic law. So it's all about religion. And it has the fanaticism that religion breeds. I think maybe about that. Uh, well, the only thing we can do now is medicinal, apply a tourniquet to the wound, which is what Israel's trying to do. But, I mean, this gets into the anti-Zionism. I mean, a lot of people in America, and even a lot of Palestinians will say they're not anti-Jewish, they're anti-Zionism, which I think is a euphemism for anti-Semitism. It's like saying, you know, I love the people of Spain, but I don't want Spain to exist. <laughs> so yes. that's what anti-Zionism is. So, you know, I don't have any patience with anti-Zionism. It's anti-Semitism. And it's clear that the Palestinians want to get rid of Israel. And that's instantiated in their slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, that means no more Israel, and that means no more Jews. So basically, they're calling for what you just read out, the elimination of the Jews. And I think Americans who side with Palestinians, or at least with that kind of mantra in this crisis, are being anti-Semitic. I mean, I hate to say that because it's a strong accusation, but I see no other explanation for the rising support for Palestine in this war. In the British left, there have been numerous accusations of anti-Semitism against the extreme left wing of the British left. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, the the, the recent uh, leader of the Labour Party, was accused of anti-Semitism. And I think, as you say, anti-Zionism is pretty much motivated by anti-Semitism. We saw it in Australia in the the chanting of gas the Jews outside the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. But nevertheless, yeah. It's amazing to me, but I could have predicted, I guess, how quickly world sentiment, except for countries like the U.S. and some of the EU supporters of Israel, how quickly the sentiments have turned from deep sympathy for the people of Israel that were executed by Hamas on October 7th to now deep sympathy for the Palestinians for suffering what they call a humanitarian crisis. So most of the media now, at least the liberal media in the U.S., are being supportive of Palestine, and they seem to have forgotten what happened in Israel, and they seem to have forgotten about the hostages 
which everybody seems to have forgotten about until two of them were released yesterday. I suppose that because of the fairly massive bombing of Gaza, that's entirely predictable and probably was predicted and probably intended by Hamas. Oh, yeah. I mean, they pulled off a great public relations stunt. They knew what was going to happen. They're using human shields, which is, again, uh, I mean, that's a violation of um, international law. And I worry that they're, well, clearly they've already won the war of propaganda against Israel in terms of world opinion. I'm more worried about whether Israel is going to survive all this, but I'm pretty confident that they will, simply because they have greater military might. But, you know, if they go in on the ground, which I pondered deeply as that that was and decided that was the best solution. If they go into ground ground war, then many Palestinian civilians and Israeli army are going to be killed. And that's simply going to make the world hate Israel even more. But the one thing people are forgetting is that the long term view, if we keep Hamas in power in Israel, which I think a lot of people want who are calling for a ceasefire. The ceasefire, of course, is supposed to be a ceasefire only for Israel, not for Palestine, who continue to fire rockets over Israel. But if that happens, the long-term thing is that terrorism will persist and more people will be killed in the future and more wars will happen. So it's not just the present body count that has to be taken into account. When you're talking about moral rectitude, you have to think about the long-term view and what's going to happen in the future. I think that's the point that Sam Harris made. What about the history of it, though? Because they, no doubt the Palestinians do have a point about um, loss of traditional lands and things like that. Or, or maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't, I don't know the history very well. Yeah, neither do I. But I know, I think, more than the average American, which is about zero. <laughs> I mean, I can't go all the way back to the British mandate, but... I think that there is some rectitude in the Palestinian accusation that the settlements in the West Bank should not be so pervasive and that the settlers in the West Bank should stop attacking Palestinians. On the other hand, to call Palestine an apartheid, I'm sorry, Israel an apartheid state and Gaza an open air prison, I think is just completely wrong. The history which is complex, also involves, which most people don't realize, five peace offers to the Palestinians from the Israelis brokered by other people like the United States for a two-state solution, which is what I wanted and what most rational people wanted as a solution to the constant friction. And the Palestinians have rejected every one of those offers. I think it was Ehud Barak, the prime minister of Israel, that said that the Palestinians never miss a chance to miss a chance. And they <laughs> yes. miss a chance in the Oslo Accords, but especially they missed a chance in the Camp David summit in 2000 with Clinton as the broker. If you look at what they were offered, it would come down to 97% of the West Bank, their own state, although Gaza would still be separated from the West Bank. But it was a, a settlement that I think would satisfy most reasonable people. And yet it gets rejected over and over again. So you have to take that into account when you take into account what's going on over there. The other thing you have to take into account is that that Hamas has widespread support in Palestine, especially in Gaza. And it's Hamas more than anything else that has impoverished Gaza and made it into the state it is today. It's not Israel, but Hamas. 
Um, they've taken the money that's been given to Israel. They've impoverished their own people by spending the money on terrorism. Most of the leaders of Hamas are multimillionaires. In fact, the head of Hamas, the political head who lives in Qatar, because a lot of these guys live in Qatar because it's, they like they have the money to do so, and they like they don't want to live in Gaza. Uh, the head of the political head of Hamas has four billion dollars. That's a lot of money, which was taken out of the pockets of Palestinians through bribes, through taxes imposed on goods coming in, etc. So if the Gazans had elected a democratic republic or a democratic state that could negotiate with Israel, yet, um, things would be much better there. The intent, and the other thing people don't remember is that Israel voluntarily gave up control of Gaza in 2005 in hopes that, that relinquishing that land would bring peace. Their hope was that Gaza would become like Singapore because they had the arable land, they had an intelligent population. Israel evacuated all the Jews from Gaza, moved them out, you know, but left the infrastructure. And so, you know, money was flowing in from other places. And did Gaza become like Singapore? No, it didn't. Why? Because they elected Hamas to be their leaders, and Hamas spent all that money to build terrorist infrastructure. So, you know, when Israel is blamed for the problems of Gaza, I don't think that has much credibility to it, you know. But that's the mantra, because people don't know the history. Yes. How do you think Israel was so sort of asleep on the job and allowed this terrible incursion to happen last week? Yeah, as, well, as a scientist... You and I both go on knowledge, and there I have none. I think even the Israelis don't know the answer. Clearly, they didn't have, they weren't alert enough for an invasion. I mean, it was a Jewish holiday, and there weren't enough soldiers. It took them several hours to get to the border. But how they got through the fence without alerting Israel to that is a mystery. You know, some people say the Iranians hacked into the Israeli computer system. I just don't know. I was in Israel about four or five weeks ago, two weeks before the invasion began, and I had lunch with the head of the Middle East Media Research Institute, which is an institute that translates everything that comes out of the Arab world into Hebrew and English and sometimes Chinese. So they're very attuned to what's going on, not only politically, but in the mosques and the schools and everything. I was sitting with this man at lunch, and he told me, I think we're going to have a war in the next two months. If they kill 10 soldiers, Jewish soldiers, that's dicey. But if they kill 20, there's going to be a war. And, well, you know, they killed 200 and they weren't soldiers. But the night before the invasion, I called this guy because I was sending him some books. And I told him, look, your books are on the way. And by the way, where is this war that you predicted would happen? And he wrote me back that same night and said, October isn't over yet. And the next day... The invasion happened, and he predicted this based on the buzz that he was detecting in mosques and politically and stuff. And he actually wrote an article saying that war is coming. Apparently, Israeli intelligence didn't pay much attention to the site, which is actually quite good. It's Middle East Media Research Institute. Uh, so somehow they missed the boat. And I think that this... I was in Israel uh, earlier this year and talked to a lot of scientists there. And I got the impression that there was a lot of opposition to Netanyahu and that with his attempt to suppress the Supreme Court, as they put it. Did you come across that feeling as well? 
Yeah, it was clear that there's opposition. There were I was in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And in Tel Aviv, at least, there were demonstrations every night against Netanyahu. And I think that after this war is over, they're going to kick him out because they're going to hold him responsible for what happened. As far as, you know, I'm not a fan of Netanyahu. I'd rather see another prime minister. But I think that people, at least Americans, don't understand the nature of the conflict between him and the Supreme Court. There, I think there are some points on his side. You know, the Supreme Court of Israel Israel has no constitution, so they have no separation of powers between judicial, you know, legislative and executive like America. So the Supreme Court has substantial legislative power there. They can overturn any law that they don't like by deeming it unreasonable. And they don't have to give a reason why they overturn the law. That's a power that's unwarranted. They can also kick out any government minister that they don't like without giving reasons. And who picks the members of the Supreme Court of Israel? I think there's 11, but I'm not sure. They're elected by members of the Supreme Court. Whereas in the U.S., the Supreme Court is constituted by presidential nomination and congressional approval. So, you know, the whole system is very different and different in a way which I think gives the Supreme Court unwarranted power. And so in that aspect of the conflict, um, I think that Netanyahu's side has some good points. On the other hand, he's a, a hawk. You know, he's not so keen on a peace process. And I just think that, you know, the Israeli people are going to give him the boot after the war is over. I'm pretty confident about that. That could be a good thing, perhaps. Can I switch subject a bit now? Um, I had dinner some years ago with the chief rabbi of Britain, who is a very nice man, Jonathan Sachs. And um, oh, yeah. he and uh, it was a large dinner with, with lots, of, lots of leading British Jews present. And they told me, which I was ashamed to say I didn't know before, the astonishingly high number of Nobel Prizes that people of Jewish heritage, I wouldn't say Jewish religion, because that's certainly not true, but Jewish heritage have gained. I mean, way, way out of proportion. If you do a, a chi-squared test, it would be just off the charts of um, achievement by people of Jewish heritage. What's that about? Where does that come from, do you think? Good question. I think the figure is like 30%, and most of those, and the, that's much higher than the proportion of Jews in the Western world, which is in the US, it's 2%. <laughs> you know, academia is highly enriched, the Nobel Prize is enriched. There's two theories, one of which is the genetic theory that Ashkenazis have genetically superior intelligence. Now, I'm not really deeply familiar with that data, so I don't buy it unless I can see evidence for it. But I know, being a secular Jew, that the culture is highly aimed at education. And that's the alternative explanation. And at least there's some evidence for that because I've lived in this culture and you can just see it. When I was growing up, my parents, they, they weren't so keen to have me spend all my time studying. But, you know, all my Jewish friends were encouraged to study hard and go to a good school and go to a profession. You don't see many Jewish homeless people or alcoholics. I don't think that's genetic necessarily. I think it's cultural phenomenon. And so that's what I would attribute the Nobel Prizes to. The one downside of that, if it is cultural difference, there is one downside of that. I was just in Israel four weeks ago, um, as I said, and 
I spent some time wandering around the area of the the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Haredim, and they spend all their time studying the Talmud and arguing about religion so that they're woefully undereducated in terms of the way that we consider educated, you know, liberal education and stuff like that. They study one thing, which is religion, and they make their kids do it. And so all that brain power, and I'm not saying it's genetic brain power, but it's certainly cultural brain power, is being diverted to the wrong end, which is learning about religion instead of, I mean, I think the proportion of Jews that would get Nobel Prizes would be even higher. Yes. If the Orthodox Jews would spend their time studying science and other things rather than religion, which is, as you wrote in your book, a delusion. They're even exempt from military service in order yeah. to spend all their time studying the Talmud, which seems to me to be really adding insult to injury. That I mean, that is, that is truly ridiculous that they should be exempt. Yeah, it makes Israel more of a theocracy than it is. And I think it's unfair. You know, there are some Haredim that voluntarily will join the army. But for the rest of Israel, everybody has to join the army. And there's more. I, this I learned when I was there, that they get supplements, stipends from the Israeli government so they can spend their time studying the Talmud and the Torah, and they don't have have regular jobs. So that's another advantage that they have. That is uh, just insane. I mean, that, that is just so yeah. silly. It's as bad as the Muslims just studying only small children learning to recite the Quran in Arabic, which they don't understand, um, old Arabic, which they don't understand. And, and that's the only education they get. I mean, it's equally ridiculous on both sides. It's religion on both sides, equally ridiculous. It is. I mean, the madrasas of the of Muslims are equivalent to yeah. sending the kids to a Jewish school. They, they're both deprived. I mean, that's some of the worst part of it. It's, I think you were the first person to deem this child abuse, right, in propagandizing people, kids, into religion. And that's what's causing it. And it's holding back the world and the religion. Now, the saddest thing I saw when I was in Jerusalem was wandering around the Orthodox district and seeing the little kids. And there are many of them because, of course, part of the Orthodox dictum is that women are basically regarded as breeders. So every family has, you know, three to five kids. And those kids would all be dressed up in, you know, Jewish garb. That the, the boys would have paella or four locks and little yarmulkes, and the women would have be, the little girls would be covered. And you knew that these kids just didn't stand a chance. I mean, there's no way they could get out of that life because yes. that's they're being brought up in it. So, yes, I would really like to see the the cycle of children inheriting the religion of their parents somehow broken. I think that's a terrible tragedy, and it's a tragedy for the children. It applies to many different religions, but I think Judaism and Islam probably worst of all. Yeah, but you're talking about Orthodox Judaism. <laughs> Most Jews. There's an old joke that says, what do you call a Jew who doesn't believe in God? And the answer is a Jew. A Jew, yes. <laughs> because most Jews are pretty close to atheists. Um, as far as the cure, yeah, there's no way around this propagandizing. But you and I know both that the world is becoming a more secular place, at least the West is, that the rate of increase of the nuns, people who are not affiliated with the church formally, is is skyrocketing. And some countries like Scandinavia might as well be officially atheists. So. I think there are encouraging signs coming out of various Islamic countries as well. I mean, Iran, the rebellion of the women over the headscarves, is, it could be trigger for 
uh, a real anti-Islamic revolution, I think, and I sincerely hope so. And I get I get encouraging yeah. word out of Egypt, out of Iraq as well. So maybe there's some hope in the Islamic world as well. Yeah, I don't pay attention to, I mostly pay attention to Iran. Uh, every day I read about it. And I follow Masi Amenajad, who is the sort of rapporteur from Iran to America. She was the one who was threatened to be kidnapped by Iran and the FBI. I know. I interviewed her. I, I interviewed oh, her. Really? Yes, a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah, she's extremely courageous. And the women of Iran mm. are courageous. I would like nothing more than the, a revolution in Iran to be inspired by women, starting with the hijab flaws as the impetus for revolution. That would be great, but who knows? Yes, let's hope. Okay, can we move on then to New Zealand, which both of us have been uh, concerned about, the policy of the, of the recent Labour government to uh, reform science education and marify it. Should we talk a bit about that? Well, I think you, you know a bit more about it than I do. Um, what's your view on that? Well... You know my view, but the, probably the, the listeners don't, which is, it's what I call, the, well, somebody else called the sacralization of the oppressed. So the Maori, who are the original indigenous people of New Zealand, they came over in about 1300, signed the Treaty of Waitinga with the British who came later, and that was in 1840. And the treaty specifies that all Maori are to have all the rights of a British citizen. And... That's a reasonable thing to do, you know. But the Maori have interpreted that clause to mean we get half of everything, even though they're not by anything close to being half the population. Now, they are regarded as people of color and they are indigenous. And yes, they were oppressed um, back in the days, but they're not oppressed anymore. They're still suffering from the oppression that they received just as American blacks are still show the residuum of slavery and bigotry. But the government is, particularly the labor government, has gone way overboard in trying to remedy this oppression. And the part that I don't like, and that probably you don't like as well, is that the way of knowing of the Maori, their sort of moral, ethical, religious, spiritual, and empirical code is now to be regarded as co-equal with Western science and to be taught in the science classes. And ways of knowing for the Maori are not the same as modern science because they include statements about uh, religion, superstition, tradition, ethics, and practical knowledge, like you pick the berries when this phase of the moon is this way. Well, part of that is science, you know, the empirical stuff, but it's largely trial and error. It's not science in the way that the whole world now understands sciences. To say that science is Western science, I think, is an insult now to the many people Absolutely. around the world. It's science. Yeah, yeah certainly is. Yes. But to say that the traditional ways of knowing, and this isn't just true in New Zealand, it's also true in the U.S., and it's also true in Canada, that where indigenous ways of knowing are to be regarded as scientific. And that the problem with New Zealand is that this is spread throughout the country to the point where objecting to it can cost you your job. So every day I get emails from New Zealand scientists re informing me about, well, this new grant is being set aside for the Maori people, or here's an initiative which doesn't look so hot scientifically, but it's being highly funded by the New Zealand government. But please don't mention my name on your blog, because I could get fired if, if you do. 
So that's one reason I think Labour has just lost the election in New Zealand, is that they are catering too much to the desire of the indigenous people to be co-equal in every respect with you know what they call the crown, the Westerners who and their descendants who are in New Zealand. Well, what they should do is give the Maoris, as they do, of course, equal opportunity to benefit from science, which is the way to actually prosper rather than to trust in the Sky Father and the Earth Mother or, or whatever it is. But is this? are you still getting those letters since the election? Because now the National Party has come in. Do we know yet whether the policy is changing? Well, the letters I get now are... Well, there are mostly about how bad New Zealand education is. It's pretty bad compared to countries like Australia, the U.S., Canada, even Singapore. Well, not even. Singapore is a really highly educated place. New Zealand is not doing well at all. The school performance, attendance, the competency in math and writing is very low. That's not completely, in fact, I couldn't put that all at the door of the Maoriization of New Zealand because it's been going on for decades, whereas the new uh, sacralization of the oppressed has only been maybe in 10, 15 years. So that's what I'm hearing about now. The new New Zealand government, which is headed by Luxon, I think is the name of the prime minister, they promised to reform education. And so I don't think they're going to let traditional ways of knowing be sold as science. They have their place in, you know, anthropology and sociology classes, but not in science classes. And I'm hoping that this new government will fix the problem. And the letters I get are from people who are heartened in the same way by this. So Yes. But they still say, don't give my name on your blog. There's an atmosphere yeah. of censorship and cancellation there, which is unbelievable, even by American standards. Well, that's the next thing I was going to come on to, uh, this feeling of self-censorship, which some of us um, have, um, the feeling that we can't, we don't really dare speak our minds because we're f- afraid of a kind of mob retaliation, not just on Twitter, but in terms of students complaining to university administrations about professors saying things in lectures that they find hurtful or damaging or hateful or or unsafe. There is an atmosphere of uh, fear in, certainly in academic life, I think in in other aspects of life as well. Um, What's your view about that? Well, it's bad, of course. (laughs) And it's widespread, at least in America. I don't know the data for England, but, you know, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights, and I think it's education, they changed the E word, but FIRE is what we call it. They take surveys of American colleges for free speech, and they rank them all every year. They just came out with their latest ranking. And one of the criteria they use, which they weight heavily, is the ability of students to speak their mind freely and how comfortable they are to speak their mind freely. And it turns out that about half of students fall into that category. And for some topics like race and religion, it's less than half because they're sensitive topics. So, you know, although we have a First Amendment that guarantees free speech, it doesn't hold in colleges and universities. I mean, it does hold in public colleges, but it's not, people are not speaking freely and professors aren't either. So as the University of Chicago used to be number one in freedom of speech, For many years, it was either between number one and number three. This year, we became number 13 in freedom of speech. And the reason for that is largely because the students here, for some reason, 
have dropped and how comfortable they feel in speaking out and on controversial topics. So that's not so good. By the way, the school at the very bottom, there were 248 schools surveyed. And the last one, the one with the least free speech, which was re- given for the first time a rating of abysmal, was Harvard University. Oh, really? Yeah. And in fact, the most elite universities in America tend to fall at the bottom in terms of free speech, which surprised me. Princeton, Harvard, you know, all these great vaunted colleges are the ones that get the lowest rankings, whereas the top 20, many of those are schools you've never heard of before. I can't remember. How are those rankings done? Well, one of them is speech codes. Do the schools have a code that demands freedom of speech and will punish students who violate it? And a lot of schools don't have a speech code. Bias reporting. Is there a bias reporting system where any student can get another student in trouble simply by reporting it to the administration and be anonymous? If you have one, that's not good because you know it impedes speech. And the, uh, there's other criteria which you can find in the website. And an important one is the how comfortable the students feel in speaking freely. So these ratings are basically all about the free speech. They're not things like academic quality, because if they were, Harvard would be at the top rather than at the bottom. Harvard, you know, is, and many of the elite schools like Princeton and Stanford have been involved in some pretty horrific censorship and cancellation incidents in the past year. So I don't know why that is. Yeah, I'm struggling to understand it as well. I don't understand it. Doesn't the University of Chicago have some special code or some special protocol which could be on and is adopted by other universities as well. I'm, I'm blocking on what it's called, but you know what I mean. Yeah, there's one. Well, we have three foundational principles, and one of them, which is the uh, free expression principle, is the one that's been adopted by over 100 schools, basically in the form that we have it, which is we have freedom of speech, Nobody can abrogate that and nobody can be punished for it. And you can say whatever you want. The First Amendment holds on campus just as it does in the public. Now, remember, there are limitations on the First Amendment in America. You can't defame somebody. You can't have false advertising. You can't threaten somebody. You can't have a harassment in the workplace and you can't incite violence. And those are the exceptions to free speech in the American Polity. And those are the same exceptions that we have at the University of Chicago. But we enjoy those principles. But that's so that's the principle that's been adopted by a hundred schools or more, and that's good. But we have two other principles which have not been adopted by other schools, and they're very important. The one is called the Kelvin Report, which is that the university should remain politically, ideologically, and morally neutral. The administration and the units of the university, like departments, should not make pronouncements on any kind of political statement or ideological statement or happenstance or, you know, event in, a, in anywhere in the world unless it directly affects the workings of the university. So, for example, when the Hamas did its butchery on October 7th, many schools falling over themselves to condemn that and support Israel, and but also support Palestine at the same time. We didn't do that. We issued a statement saying there's a war going on, more or less. And it's bad, you know, and it, many students are upset by it. And here are the psychological resources available for students. We've never made a pronouncement on the Vietnam War or on there was a Red Scare in the 50s and people were on the university to condemn communism. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> we just don't. We remain absolutely apart from 
political events. And that's because if the university and the Department of State stands on anything like that, it chills the speech of everybody. So if you're a grad student and your department says, as my department originally did, that we support freedom of choice for women and um, and abortion should be free. My department did that. Other departments have done that. That's a political, ideological, and moral position. I happen to agree with that position, but I don't agree with my department having made this pronouncement because there are plenty of people who disagree with that statement, who are pro-life. And they, if that was the official position of the department, would you be willing as a graduate student as a, or as an untenured professor to speak out on these? this? No, you wouldn't because you would be afraid of not being promoted or advancing. And so that's, that goes with the whole university. The university will not take stands. And that position has only been adopted by two universities in the country, our university and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I understand that Princeton may pass it, but this is a very important principle for to maintain free speech. It buttresses the free speech or free expression principle. And the schools that violated Calvin, which for many of them, like Harvard and Stanford and UCLA, they got themselves in a lot of trouble by not making the right kind of statement about Hamas. They'd say, well, you know, Hamas invaded Israel and we condemn it, but we also condemn the loss of life on both sides. And they got in trouble for that because there was a lot of people who objected to this both sideism. Harvard, you know, Steve Pinker helped write us faculty letter that signed by 350 people saying, you know, this administration statement is not condemn Hanas sufficiently, you know, and the president got into trouble and she had to issue two corrections saying, oh, let me make it clear that I really do think that Hamas did a bad thing. Yeah. And this happened yeah. over and over again. That could have all been avoided if these universities had adopted institutional neutrality. But once you have a history of making political statements, which Harvard did, and you cannot simply, you know, it say you're ideologically neutral when Jews start getting killed. I mean, that yeah. itself is a statement about where your morality lies. So I'm sorry, I'm running off of this. The third principle, which I'll just say briefly, is called the Schills principle. And that is that promotion, tenure, and hiring can be based only on three things. Academic achievement, scholarship, sorry, academic achievement and scholarship, teaching, and service to the university. Okay, nothing else. And that involves, so that rules out affirmative action at the University of Chicago because ethnicity is not one of the criteria for being advanced. And that, and that means that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a criterion for hiring or advancement here. And that's another important principle that we have. I was going to come on to affirmative action because I strongly support that, that Chicago principle that academic hiring should be on the basis of research and te teaching and, and service to the university. And, and it should be completely irrelevant what sex you are or what race you are. But you have some sympathy for affirmative action, don't you, in, in certain respects? Yeah, although it's changing over time because I cannot think of a good way to exercise affirmative action that I don't think is will work and that I don't think it has a certain element of unfairness in it. So my views on affirmative action have been ratcheted back, not by the Supreme Court, which, you know, ruled it out, but simply by thinking about it, because I don't think it really helps people. It, you know, it puts 
minorities into elite universities, but those minorities tend to not do so well, and many of them drop out, or if they're in STEM, they'll change majors or things. So my view is that it's always changing. It changes from minute to minute. Before it was that you would have a certain bar for admission, and everybody above that bar would be considered qualified to be hired or admitted to college. And then in that group that was considered um, qualified, you would enrich it to a certain degree with members of minorities which is a form of affirmative action. But since everybody's considered qualified, it does not trade off quality versus ethnicity. This is the great dilemma of affirmative action because minorities in America don't do so well. I think that's a residuum of history and bigotry, not genetics. Let me make that clear. But, you know, the more minorities that you let into a school, the, the less quality you have in terms of the conventional assessments of quality. And this is why schools are doing away with standardized testing and even grade point averages. Because if you hold to saying your SATs have to be above a certain level, that cuts out a lot of minorities. So the way schools do with this is simply dispense with this criterion and say, we're going to have a holistic form of admissions, which they don't specify (laughs) what is holistic. Um, But it it seems to involve degree of difficulty in your life, which is a proxy for race. So that was my solution. But now I think that the, all this energy that's invested in DEI should really be invested earlier in the pipeline, giving minority children equal opportunity rather than expecting equal outcomes, especially now, because it's going to take years before equal opportunity, if it does translate into equal outcomes, would produce equity. Do you have students uh, who have applied for assistant professorships in universities in America and have been turned down because they were, because of their their race and sex? Do you feel that... Not at the University of Chicago, because we prohibit that. Yeah, but but you you must have had students applying to other universities. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that that happens in other schools. You know, that the University of California had a system in place. I, I'm not sure if it's still in place, but it was, where they had a 12-point rating system for candidates who were required to submit DEI statements that were said, what is your philosophy of diversity, equity, and inclusion? What have you done in the past for diversity, of education, and inclusion? What will you do at our university to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? So there were three statements you had to make in one, and in each one you get rated on a four-point scale. And so your ratings would go from zero, which means basically you're Martin Luther King and think that you don't judge people by their color, and up to 12, which means that you're with Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo as, you know, a race activist. And what happened at California is they simply discarded any application without reviewing academic quality if their DEI scores were not sufficiently high. So that happened. I mean, those were people who did not even have a chance to get hired because of their view and race. And then there's this guy, I think at one of the University of California schools, who wrote a DEI statement that would disqualify him from taking a job there, even though his wife had one, and he's suing that university. So DEI statements are required in many schools in America, and there's no doubt that they're used to help hire people and regard them as 
quality. So there's no doubt that, you know, ethnicity-based evaluation happens in American academia. I'm just glad it doesn't happen in my school. (laughs) Yes. Well, since we've got on to race, one of the uh, strong beliefs among um, intellectuals in our countries is that race is a fiction, that race doesn't exist. And I think you can trace this back as far as the science is concerned to your mentor, Richard Lewontin, um, yeah. who, and obviously you have, I, I know you have enormous admiration for him, but tell us a bit about his contribution to the, to the race debate and what you, your view of it is. Yeah, well, he, Dick wrote a paper in 1972. I can't remember what it was called, but he looked at the variation in the human species and apportioned it to, you know, in a sort of a multi-level group analysis into how, what proportion of that variation, and by variation, I mean variation in genes. At that time, it was electrophoretic variation, but you get pretty much the same result if you look at DNA variation. Um, you find out that about well, at his time, it was like 85% of the electrophoretic variation was found within any one population, and maybe another 12% was found between populations. We're not talking about races now. We're talking about populations like Scandinavia versus the United States, and only, God, I can't remember, it's like 2 to 5% of the total variation in the human species was found between races. So his, he concluded this paper by saying, well, we've shown that race has no genetic importance in apportioning the human species, so therefore it's of no importance and we shouldn't talk about it. The problem with that, which was only pointed out, maybe, you know, I can't remember the guy that pointed it out. Uh, it was called Lewinton's Error or something yeah. like that. Anthony Edwards, AWF a- Edwards. Yeah, he pointed out, and he pointed out correctly, that although... Most of the variation is found within a population that if you look at, we, I mean, we have, what, 3 billion nucleotides in the human genome, and 99% of them are identical between people. That still leaves 12 million differences between people. And if you look at those differences, and Lewinton neglected this because he looked at, you know, he he did the 99% thing. But if you look at the stuff that is variable, you find out that it's pretty co- well correlated with ancestry, geography, and ethnicity. I, I'd rather say ethnicity than race simply because race has become such a fraught term in this discourse that, you know, ethnicity is basically what I call a synonym for race. But I don't think race is... I mean, no biologist, including you, I'm sure, believes in race the way that many people think we do, which is that you can divide human beings absolutely into discrete groups that are highly differentiated genetically and are highly differentiated geographically, and there's no fuzziness between them. And that's just not the way it works, because as you know, we have groups within groups within groups, and there's no point at which we can say, well, this is a race, this is a population, this is sort of a semi-race, you know? What we know is that these that the differences between human populations are enormously useful in many ways, and they're meaningful biologically. And that even in the old term of race, you know, using races like blacks, whites, Hispanics, East Asians, Africans, even that crude classification, which I don't, I don't say that those are the races, that's just the crude way that people divided up humanity. They have, there's some sense to it because they're geographically isolated. And that's how the differences arose. It's highly correlated with genetic differences. And 
The Washington Post just had a front page article this week, which I've written a letter about. I don't know if they'll publish it, but they said that race is a social construct with no biological meaning, and therefore we should discard it. And I pointed out that even the crude concept of race, black, white, East Asian, Hispanics, has biological meaning. Because one guy, I think, I can't remember his name, but he did a study where he asked 36,000 Americans to self-identify as to what their race was. So they'd say, well, I'm black or I'm white or I'm East Indian. And then a different group of people, a group of geneticists, looked at their DNA without knowing how these people self-identified. And so we had two groups of data, self-identification and genetic data. And they found out that the cross-correlation was 98.5% between those <laughs> yes. groups. Yes. You could identify, if you had the genetic data on somebody that was black, you had a 98.5 sense of identifying them as black from their DNA. So even these crude races are, are genetically differentiated in an almost diagnostic way. That means something biologically. I mean, what it means is that these groups that you know, we're separated geographically. That's what, how this race is originated in the first place. Africans were in Africa. East Asians were in East Asia. Caucasians were in the West. Hispanics, well, they're kind of a mixture. But geographically isolated populations, as you know, began to differentiate genetically. And then we, they come back together again. And because they still intermarry, they still retain a lot of their genetic differences. But, you know, even differences between populations. So, so even the races themselves are not social constructs. They have biological meaning and it's diagnostic to a large extent. Now, what that means for differences in behavior, everybody's so interested in IQ. Um, we don't know. Luana Moroj and I wrote a paper about that we published, and we basically said that these differences might be helpful, but we don't know enough about them yet. But what we know absolutely is that differences between, on a smaller level, between populations are extremely useful. And the best way to point that out is to say, send your DNA into 23andMe, and there's a very high probability that by using many, many of the variable sites in your genome, they're going to be able to tell you who your ancestors were. You know, and so I sent my DNA in a couple of years ago, and it came back with, I was 98% Ashkenazi Jew, which I knew already from my heritage. And another, the rest of me was also Jewish, but not Ashkenazi Jewish, and that my relatives were likely to have come from Poland, which I knew was true because my grandmother was Polish. So, you know, the accuracy of 23andMe shows you the usefulness of differences between populations in their genes. So that's one use. But also in identifying bodies, I mean, the differences between people and groups are if you find a dead body, you can, that's how they're identifying a lot of these Israelis that were killed by Hamas by looking at their DNA and finding, that's identifying them as to family and who they are. But you can also use it to identify people as to their population because we have databases. So if you find a, a semen or blood at a crime scene, for example, you can judge with considerable accuracy what ethnicity the person was who did the crime. But not only that, you can identify the person who did the crime if you had a data bank of DNA, which I yeah. don't recommend yeah. doing. But yeah. Yeah. And there's also correlations with disease. So anyway, yeah. sorry. Did Richard Lewontin recount at all on that? I mean, you must have talked to him about it later on in, in his life. Yes, I did an interview. Did with he read Anthony Edwards's paper? That I don't know, but I interviewed him. You know, he 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 
got dementia for about 10 years before he died, a couple of years ago. And I interviewed him for four or five hours before that happened, right before he started losing his mental faculties. And he didn't back off on anything, including the race thing. I know I don't know when Anthony Edwards' paper came out, but I think it was probably before that. I think it was, yes. Wasn't it in the 80s? I I think so. But anybody, if anybody thought hard about the problem at that time that Dick published his paper, they would have realized the fallacy of concentrating only on the DNA that people have in common and saying, well, it makes our race useless. And realizing, well, we didn't have the human genome back then. So he could have written this paper, and there's some excuse for him saying what he did. But he didn't consider the fact that a lot of the genome could be variable and could be useful in diagnosing ethnicity and geography. He might have said that in that paper, but he didn't. And it was only till we started getting, in fact, you could have said it at the time because we had electrophoretic data showing in Drosophila pseudobscura, which both he and I worked on, that populations differed in their frequencies of electrophoretic genes. And so even though most Drosophila shared their electrophoretic genes, the populations differed in the frequency of those things. And if you combine the different genes into a multivariate analysis, you might be able to diagnose populations of flies. He should have been able to realize that at the time, but he didn't. But remember, Dick was motivated by politics. He was a Marxist, and he had an ideological reason for saying what he did. So, you know, although I admired him tremendously, and in fact loved him as a great advisor and a great human being and a smart guy, he had his weaknesses. And one of them, as you realize, is that he was fell sway to an extreme left ideology. And more than that, that ideology affected his science. And that's the reason why he wrote that paper, I believe, to show that all humans are basically the same. Yeah. And the differences are irrelevant, that they're infinitely malleable, which is one of the reasons he attacked sociobiology. That's another Marxist tenet. And so populations cannot differ biologically in meaningful ways because everybody's can be changed by their environment to resemble anybody else. Yeah. Well, Jerry, we've been talking for an hour. Uh, I think we better oh, or- call it a day. <laughs> so thank you very, very much indeed for this. I've, I've enjoyed it very much and I've, I've learned a lot. Many thanks. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.